right? He, as we see, he curses fig trees and they die. So he's introduced, he's coronated, he authenticates his authority as Messiah, his, then begins the rejection. Everybody starts to reject him, right? Especially the, the religious leaders. He goes through that trial and now he subjects himself. And we find ourselves today in the triumphal entry. This is actually Palm Sunday, seven days before his resurrection. Okay, we are in the Easter season and the Ash Wednesday that's 40 days before started a couple weeks ago. Okay, 40 days before the resurrection of Christ. We find ourselves today at Palm Sunday, seven days before this triumphal entry, seven days before his resurrection. Saturday, leading up to that, in John chapter 12, so let's pretend last night we're seven days from, let's go back 2,000 years, we find ourselves at Bethany and we're in that room and Jesus is anointed. Okay, Mary takes the perfume and anoints him for burial. Sunday, today, Jesus is riding in on this triumphal entry. Tomorrow, he's going to clear the temple. Tuesday and Wednesday, he's going to do some additional teaching. Monday, Thursday, he's going to have the Lord's Supper. Friday, he's crucified. Sunday, he's raised from the dead. So that's where we are in this particular section of Mark right now. Okay? The triumphal entry. The response. In parallel passages in Luke chapter 19 and John chapter 12, we know this to be a momentous event. Okay? A very large crowd of disciples, it says in Luke chapter 19. In John chapter 12... It says, many went up from the country to Jerusalem looking for Jesus. There's a stirring going on as he making his way into Jerusalem. A real stirring. Many people, because they had heard that he had given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, see this? This is getting us nowhere. The whole world has gone after him, is the way it's recorded in John chapter 12. So there's a, quite a hubbub brewing as Jesus is making his way into this triumphal entry. And don't you think that would be the case? I mean, it's not a mystery. If there's a guy cruising around the Vale Valley from East Vale all the way to Gypsum, and he's raising people from the dead, and he's healing people of diseases, he's parting or calming storms out on Sylvan Lake, whatever. I mean, there's a giant hubbub going here, okay? And they know that Passover is coming. And they're looking for that Messiah. And he's been preaching. This is why I was sent, to preach and to teach throughout the land. So he's been preaching the Gospel. He's teaching them Zechariah 9.9. He's told them about... You remember back in Ezra and Nehemiah when when, as soon as that decree is issued, there's going to be a certain amount of time? That time's now. Remember he opens up Isaiah. He reads from Isaiah and says, The time has come. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim the good news. They know, especially the disciples. But even those people, the madman of Gadara and the Gadarenes in that tomb, let me go with you, cast out the demons, let me go with you. No, you go back and tell the people. There is a giant hubbub brewing, and this is a big time of the year anyway. This is Passover. And there are throngs of people making their way to come and celebrate the Passover. So this is no small event. Jesus, on His way... They approached Jerusalem and came to Bethage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. And Jesus sent two of His disciples. He said, go to the village and, and I want you to go get me a donkey. That's symbolic, right? Zechariah 9.9. I really don't think any of this stuff, this is my own perception. This is not, it's not a real mystery. They know He's Messiah. 
Right? They know Zachariah. He's, go get me a donkey. Well, that's what you taught on last week. I know. Remember, I'm Messiah. I mean, this is getting kind of weird. Not weird. It's getting exciting. Okay, go to the village. Tell them you must enter. Find a colt tied there. Verse 4. Let's go on to verse 4. They went and found that colt, just as he had said. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing untying that colt? What are you doing, my donkey? Well, Messiah wants it. Oh, okay. Cool. We don't need trouble with Messiah. And they know exactly where it comes from. They answered as Jesus told them, verse 7, when they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. They've, again, they, they know what's going on here. They'd cut branches in the fields, and those who went ahead of those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They are rejoicing as they see Messiah, and that's Psalm 118 being praised. Blessed is the kingdom, is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. In Luke's account, we see Jesus weeping as he approaches Jerusalem. And he wept as he looked down on Jerusalem. I don't know why. It doesn't say why. Possibly because they didn't recognize Him. There should have been the entire Jerusalem, city of Jerusalem should have been on fire looking for this guy. They should have known just as in as much as the Magi knew when He was born. But there's still a good hubbub. Perhaps it was because He saw the impending doom that would occur once again as it had in years past at the very end of Kings, at the very end of Chronicles when we see Jerusalem smashed for her spiritual adultery, for her turning her heart against the Lord. And he knows and he prophesies, he said, in 70 years, this place, there's not going to be one stone left on the other. or he makes, There will not be one stone left 70 years later. Titus comes in and wipes Jerusalem out. Maybe he's crying because of that. He sees all the carnage and stuff. We don't know. But he's weeping. And presumably so, weeping at the condition of Jerusalem. He had punctuated his arrival with miracle after miracle, fulfilling all of the Old Testament prophecies and been preaching for three years. All he preached from was the Old Testament, right? So all of those Old Testament prophecies, they know, they know this is the guy and they reject him anyway. Here's some heart questions on this first little cameo appearance. Here's some heart questions for you. What about you? Has Jesus approached your heart only to be saddened? If he was looking down on the, on the, from the hilltop of whatever you call that, the White Mountain or whatever that's called over there, looking down into your heart, what would, he, what would his initial perception be? Would he be saddened? Are you involved in something that could spell doom? Is he sad because he sees that what the activities that you're engaging in right now could in fact be your doom? Spiritually, financially, emotionally, intellectually, whatever. Are you playing with things that you shouldn't be playing with? Are you preparing for His arrival? Are you up on the hillside laying down these branches? Are you putting your coat over the donkey to usher Him in? Are you ready for that? Or are you still just kind of just playing? We're just playing. I'm going to be down here in the city doing some shopping. I know there's whatever's going on. Or are you seriously preparing for Jesus' return? That's the first cameo. Cameos of the heart. Are you prepared for Jesus to enter your heart? And if He did, if He's looking down right now, what would He be finding? 
And is it good? That's Sunday. On Monday, Jesus clears the temple. The next day, verse 12, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. This is Monday. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and a leaf, He went to find out if it had any fruit. And when He reached it, He found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then He said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And His disciples heard Him say it. We'll pick that up later in verse 20. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise from the temple courts. And as He taught them, He said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? Isaiah 56. But you have made it a den of robbers. Quoting Jeremiah 7. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill Him. For they feared Him because the whole crowd was amazed at His teaching. When evening came, they went out of the city. Now isn't it interesting just first pass, there are temple guards and they're bad dudes. They're just like any other armed guard we know today. It follows around a Brinks truck or anything. They will blow your head off if you try to break in. Temple guards, no different. Okay? Jesus goes in there, turns this thing upside down. They don't lay a hand on Him. They can't. Remember several accounts through the Scriptures and He walked through the crowd. He's got all the authority in the world. Jesus clears the temple. We'll get back to the fig tree like I said later. The temple had been corrupted as the world, as corrupt as the world outside of it using forbidden measuring standards. Forbidden in the very Levitical law that these priests were practicing on Passover to sell these, these uh, doves and goats and lambs and whatever you could afford, right? There was a, in Leviticus chapter 19, these guys know the, they know the Old Testament law. Leviticus 19, do not use unbalanced ways of measuring. Do not charge somebody more than you can get just the equal fair market value for stuff that they're trying to offer. They're coming to worship me. And they're violating Leviticus 19 right out of the gate. Not at all like God had promised in Isaiah 56 when He said all the nations are welcome to come. And even in Leviticus 19, it talks about the aliens. If an alien comes and wants to sacrifice, let him sacrifice. We'll welcome them in. Play it out. But they had made such a scam out of this sales and secularization and merchandising of this time period to make profit that they were driving out the Gentiles. They wouldn't even let them in allowing them to sacrifice to the Lord that they recognized as choosing Jews first. That's fine, but they still wanted to be a part of it and they were keeping them out. Israel and the temple were to be holy, set apart, sanctified for a lost world to come into and worship the true living God. That is why He elected Israel in the first place, so that the nations would look in and give praise to their God. Not different than Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, right? Let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your God in heaven. Good. Wow. Sean, is, he is involved. That guy is a man. Look at Ivan and Linda. Look what they're doing. The neighbors look around. They look into them and give praise to the God. They're serving a mighty God. Mike goes over, works with these electricians, doesn't swear, keeps his head, keeps his cool, keeps them encouraged. They look in. That guy's different. Praise, praise, the Lord. praise, their, praise his God. Heart questions. Heart questions. Cameo number two if you're taking notes. 
Do you have a different standard of measuring inside the church as you do outside? In other words, do you measure sin the same on Sunday as you do Monday through Friday? If Jesus were to walk in, our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, right? 2 Corinthians 6.16 If Jesus entered your heart today, would He find some tables and some measuring that wasn't quite where it needed to be? Would He be cleaning out your heart? Or would He be pleased? Are you really offering God the first fruits in every area of your life? Does God get that first hour of your day? If there's a 24-hour pie here, that first little sliver, is that His? Or is that yours? Are you setting apart the first fruit of your crop, of your lambs, of your children, everything? Everything is His, right? Are you setting apart the first fruits in every area of your life? Would Jesus clear the temple of your heart? Or, let's be encouraged, would He be pleased? Would He be pleased with what's going on inside? I think He would in a few cases. And all of us have areas that we can work on. Tuesday, the withered fig tree. He mentions it, this little cameo in clearing the temple, and they just kind of leave it. Well, they pick it back up on verse 20. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, that tree you cursed is withered. Peter, he's calmed the storm. He's thrown out demons. I mean, that's not... Peter forgets. We all forget, right? We learned that this morning. We need to be singing the song of Moses in our hearts. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. I tell you the truth, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in his heart but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore, verse 24, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you receive it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. Okay, I believe that the fig tree represents two things. The nation of Israel, and this is not just my belief, the commentaries that I was reading and preparing this. The nation of Israel and the Christian. Bearing no fruit. There is an area in your life and mine where we are bearing no fruit. And we need to come to grips with that. That's okay. That's what this is all about. The entire epistles, Lori and I were talking about this last week, all of the epistles that Paul wrote were written presupposing all the time that you weren't going to do any of it, right? So be encouraged. Right? That's why they're written. Think only on those things that are pure and lovely and admirable, true and noble and right. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things, Paul says. Set your mind on that stuff. Why does he write that? Because he's presupposing that you're not going to be thinking on pure and lovely and admirable, true and noble and right. That rat fink, I mean, by golly, I'll tell him a thing or two. And I mean, you just go on and on and on, right? He presupposes that we need to be instructed. Not different than here. There is fruit in our life that we just need to deal with. We need to be producing fruit. Israel at the time of Christ was playing religion and full of hypocrisy. Israel had become what Jesus described the church of Laodicea, wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. That's his accusation. I hope and pray that our church is not wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. If that was Jesus' description of Eagle Bible Church before the Father. I don't think that's the case at all. But we want to 
be aware, look, be looking, anticipating to his arrival and preparing ourselves, setting ourselves apart as holy, setting the first fruits of our life, every area of our life, be giving that to God so that we are prepared when he does come. Heart questions. The cameo of the fig tree. Would Jesus find your life bearing the kind of fruit that would please him? Thoughts, music, relationships, quiet time, witness. Would Jesus remove your lampstand as he described in Revelation 2, the Ephesian church, if he were to examine your fruit? Are you abiding in Christ? If you want to, you don't need to, but if you want to, turn over to John chapter 15. This particular passage in Mark chapter 11 has been so taken out of context, there have been entire organizations built on that particular passage. Ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. So we have to take the full pail of Scripture when it's talking about praying and we'll pick it up in Mark, or John chapter 15 and verse 5. I am the vine and you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. If you move on down to verse 16, you'll find out what kind of fruit cars and Cadillacs and big houses and fancy things. Verse 16, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. This is my command. Love each other. Are you abiding in Christ? Jesus said at the Garden of Gethsemane, Not my will, but thy will be done for all things are possible through you not my will but thy will not your will but his will without faith it's impossible to please God Hebrews eleven six. faith and prayer are inexorably woven and Jesus answers that hey Rabbi Jesus look the fig tree's withered he said have faith in God it's impossible to please the Father without faith and interestingly enough in Mark in Matthew chapter 6 in Mark chapter 11 And in Luke chapter 11, oddly enough, offering forgiveness is in all of them. If you are not forgiving someone, your Father in heaven cannot forgive you. Now that's a powerful, and you can chew on that over the week. If you are holding a grudge in your heart, if you are not forgiving somebody in your life, and you haven't forgiven them, your heavenly Father cannot forgive you. It's a very, very powerful conditional statement on your salvation and on your forgiveness. It's an interesting thing and an interesting topic among heady theologians that we don't need to get into. Heart questions. So the withered fig tree. Cameo number three, the withered fig tree. Is your faith and prayer life Christ-focused or is it you-focused? Are you praying for others to bear fruit and that their eyes of understanding may be enlightened in order that they may see the width and depth and breadth and height of Christ's love and the glorious riches of the saints as Paul did, Ephesians chapter 1. 
Philippians chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, all of Paul's prayers are sheep focus, are his people focus. Is that the way your prayer life is? Or is it you focus? Is there anyone in your life that you need to reconcile with today? Abba, Father, everything is possible for you, yet not what I will, but what you will. Mark 14, just probably on the same page of your Bible. Be asking according to God's will, not yours. Last one. This is Wednesday. The authority of Jesus. And I added this myself. Questioned in question mark. Are you kidding me? I mean, the guy walks in water, throws out demons. You can read your mind. I mean, and they're questioning his authority. It's kind of interesting. They arrived again in Jerusalem. Verse 27. And while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests and teachers of the law and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked. And who gave you the authority to do this? Why didn't you have me arrested by the temple guards if it's so bad? It's the second time he's done it, by the way. They can't touch him. They know who he is. They know where his authority comes from. They know what he has done. And they know who he is. They just don't want to give it up. I'll ask you one question. Answer me. This is, again, showing his authority intellectually. No one can out-argue Christ. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? Tell me. He had just told them earlier that John was the greatest Old Testament prophet ever, and no one would surpass him. And they knew that John had a serious follower, some serious followers, and they did not want to be hypocritical. They didn't want to stir up a mob. They discussed it among themselves. If we say from heaven, he'll ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men... They feared the people for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And he said, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. Cameo number four, the authority of Jesus questioned. Heart questions for you. Are you interested in really finding the truth? Are you guilty of questioning the authority of Christ in your life? Not different than Genesis. Did God really say... I mean, surely if I do this, then I can do... Are you manipulating? Are you trying to negotiate with God and His will in your life? Are you trying to manipulate Christ with your walk so it lines up with your personal desires? Numbers chapter 25, the story of Balaam. I'll pray. No, I can't do that. I'll pray. Uh, Can I curse him? No. I'll pray. Can I... No. Okay. And let's do this. All right, I won't curse him. Go rounds up a bunch of fillies. Come over here, introduce them. We'll get them mixed up in idolatry. Really search and examine your heart. I ask you, and that's not, I'm not implying that you're doing that. Just search your heart. Your heart is wicked above all things, Jeremiah 17. Not my will, but your will, Father. Is Jesus Christ the ultimate authority in every area of your life? And if not, why? To wrap it up, four cameos. What would Christ's response be if He wrote in to the temple of your heart and what would your response be? Number two, what would Christ find in the temple of your heart? Would He clear it out or would He join you in worship? Number three, what is the condition of the fruit you're bearing? Would Christ find something to eat or would He move on? And number four, what position of authority does Christ have in your life? 
Are you willingly submissive or are you fighting him in certain areas of your life? The cameos of the heart. If you haven't come to a point or a decision in Christ, we have a little acronym called the Gospel where God, it says this, the G-O-S-P-E-L, God created us to be with Him and our sin separated us from God. Sin cannot be replaced by good deeds. We know that all the way through the Old Testament and even through the Gospel. You cannot earn your righteousness. But paying the price for sin, Jesus died and rose again. And everyone who trusts in Christ alone has eternal life, and life eternal means living with Jesus Christ forever. If you haven't come to the point in your life today and you would like to do that, you can see myself or Andrew or in the quietness of your own heart. It doesn't matter. But if you do make that decision, you need to tell somebody and then we need to get you baptized. It's not a condition of your salvation, but it is an ordinance that we practice here at Eagle Bible Church. In just a minute, we're going to be start handing out the... Um, the elements, because we practice two ordinances, one of those being the Lord's Supper and the other is baptism. But before we pass out the elements and we play a little song here as you pray, remember what Paul said, a man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. So as you spend the next 60, 70, 120 seconds Spend it in repentance before the Lord, asking the Holy Spirit to reveal to you what it is you can do to be a temple of our living God. Let's pray. Holy Father, thank you again for your precious word. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that each one of us here would prepare and be among the throngs of people that were escorting you into the very temple of our heart. That you would not find anything, Lord, that would be sorrowful to you. And if there is, God, through your Holy Spirit, give us the courage to get rid of it. Lord, we pray that in every area of our life we're bearing fruit. And Lord, lastly, we pray that we just submit ourselves to your full authority in our lives. We thank you for your word. We thank you for what you've done at Calvary. And thank you so much, Lord God. Just pray that your Holy Spirit would continue His transforming work. And it's in Christ's name we pray all these things. Amen.